everyone. Uh, my name is Jocelyn, and as Ben and Adam have already mentioned, we're starting a new series today. So we just wanted to give you a little bit of an introduction uh, to this series we're doing in the lead up to Christmas to give you a bit of the, the scope so you can follow along with us and understand a bit about what's going on. Uh, now, it might feel a bit like we're taking a bit of a department store attitude to Christmas, starting this early. Uh, we're two weeks out from the traditional Advent um, calendar. We're three weeks out from the start of December, the first Sunday in December, and despite my best efforts, Nick Larkin usually stops me from singing any Christmas carols to December, <laughs> but not this year. <laughs> uh, this year, we're going to be setting the scene for Jesus' arrival, starting tonight in the book of Genesis. Uh, and the next six weeks is an amplified version of a very traditional service form called Lessons and Carols. Um, this is a service that normally takes place on Christmas Eve. It might be something that's quite familiar to you. You might know exactly what that is and you've grown up going to lessons and carol services at Christmas. Or maybe you think it sounds like you have to go to school at Christmas instead. I'm not sure. Um, so I wanted to tell you a little bit about lessons and carols and why we're doing this series in the lead up to Christmas this year. Lessons and carols began as a kind of evangelistic strategy. Uh, up until the late 19th century, carols were seen as really secular. They weren't, even though they were about Jesus, they weren't sung at church. They were sung at home, they were sung in pubs, uh, but it was not something that people thought was appropriate for church. And so choirs from churches often uh, would go and visit people's homes or sing on the street and uh, share carols with people um, out in public. But the problem was that people were less interested in Jesus at Christmas and more interested in drinking and eating and parties. Now, it might feel like a real stretch across the cultural and historical divide to imagine Christmas looking like that, that people are more interested in parties than in Jesus, but just, stre just stretch your minds a little bit and see if you can make it there. So the Bishop of Truro, which is a part of England, in 1880, which is the same year that the back half of our building was completed and opened up, uh, he came up with this great idea. We're not going to send out the choir to sing Christmas carols in people's homes or on the streets. Instead, we're going to have a special Christmas carol service in the church. And we're going to intersperse these carols with readings from the scriptures to point people back to Jesus, to remind them that Christmas is not just about partying uh, and having a good time. It's actually the celebration should be about our Lord and Saviour. That's the most wonderful thing about Christmas. And it really took hold. It really caught on. People thought this was a great idea. They had about 400 people come to that first carols and lessons service. And literally all it was was short readings of scripture and singing carols in between. Uh, and churches all over England and eventually all over the world started doing these lessons and carols services. Um, it's most famously now broadcast on Christmas Eve by King's College in Cambridge. And they started broadcasting that on the BBC in 1918, and they started broadcasting it worldwide in 1930. So, why start a series of Bible readings on Jesus' birth in the book of Genesis? Feels like maybe that's a bit earlier than we should, right? Now, we could do a nativity, uh, and we often do that kind of series at Christmas, where we look at the narrative of Jesus' birth on its own, and uh, we retell the story. But the Lessons and Carols series seeks to tell the significance of the Christmas story um, by looking at the context of Jesus coming into the world. 
This wasn't a plan B for God, is what the lessons in Carol's service would like us to learn. It wasn't some kind of last-ditch, desperate attempt to save humanity. Lessons and Carols gives us a little glimpse into some of the passages in the Old Testament that foreshadow Jesus' coming and show us that this was God's plan right from the beginning. The Christmas story is not some kind of quaint folk tale that we tell at this time of year. It's the description of a strategic rescue operation. But we can't appreciate that if we don't know how they got to the point of Jesus coming to earth in the scriptures. So for the next six weeks, we're going to be doing this kind of amplified version of the lessons in Carol's service, where we just look at one or two passages each week in a bit more depth in the lead up to Christmas. Um, And we'll be preparing our hearts in that way to celebrate Christmas together. And all this will culminate in Christmas where we have our own lessons and carol service and put it all together, just like they did in Truro in 1880. Uh, Now, perhaps really, it's a good time to be starting early with Christmas at church. I mean, Marrickville Metro's already into it. Why not us? As the Christmas presents start to stack up in the cupboard, if you're that kind of person and you're feeling very organised, or the Christmas plans are starting to crowd out your calendar for the rest of the year, we're not saving thinking about Jesus at Christmas until it's almost on top of us and after all the craziness has started, but instead as it all kicks off. So let's start today by going right back to creation, looking for these glimpses of Jesus, why we needed him, born to die, that we might live. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to open the book of Genesis. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at the context of your son coming into the world that you would open our eyes even wider to see the plan that you put in place, how much you loved us that you sent your son into the world for our sake. God, we thank you that you had this plan in place from the beginning of creation, that it wasn't a backup plan, it wasn't a last-ditch attempt, but instead what you planned all along that you planned to sacrifice in this way, that you planned to go through the pain and the suffering and the joys and the experiences of being a human so that we could be in relationship with you. We pray for Pete as he brings your word to us this evening, that you will be helping and guiding him this evening. God, we pray as our hearts um, come to your word now that they would be ready and open, that we'd be ready to listen and to learn and to be reminded of the truths and the convictions that you have for us today. Amen. Thanks, Lynn. So the sermon passage today starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 on page 3. So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we flick over to chapter 3. 
from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig trees to leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for reading for us, uh, Lynn. And thanks, uh, Joss, for... Uh, opening up this series for us. As uh, Josh said, as we lead up to Christmas, we're going to be thinking about uh, these key Old Testament texts that point us forward to Jesus. And so we'll see that uh, Christmas, the coming of Jesus, uh, is not a surprise. Uh, it's not something uh, that happens out of nowhere, but actually the Old Testament creates an anticipation of Jesus. But what I'd like to do this evening is help us uh, begin to expand our view of Christmas, uh, to have a bigger view of Christmas. Uh, Tom Holland, uh, not the Spider-Man uh, Spider actor, but the uh, British historian, uh, recently uh, made the comment that uh, we've entered a period when winter has become again something to be feared. And he's particularly speaking in a kind of northern hemisphere context uh, winter has again become something to be feared, three years running now, and in the depths of winter, Christmas really matters. And uh, we can sort of translate that into a southern hemisphere context, but still, in the, in the depths of winter, in a world uh, that is marked by suffering and evil, uh, winter in that sense, Christmas really matters. And so we want to have a big view of Christmas. We want to have a big view of Christmas. And the way to have a big view of Christmas is to have a big view of Christ. And so this evening we want to increase uh, 
our understanding of who Jesus is, the Jesus who was born as a baby in Bethlehem. In the final book of uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, uh, The Last Battle, uh, the children are caught in the crossfire of a fierce battle. Uh, on, on top of uh, the hill where they are, there's a, a door to a small shed. And to escape the danger, they enter the door. And they discover the door is an entry point, not to a tiny shed, but to a vast world of sweeping grasslands and limitless horizons. And the, the characters are amazing. They comment on this extraordinary fact, a shed in which the inside is vastly bigger than the outside. And Lucy says, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. That's the truth of, of Christmas. Uh, Jesus, born, we'll see, was bigger than the entire world. So we want to have a bigger view of Jesus so that we have a bigger view of Christmas. And the best place to do that, I think, uh, well, I would say that because it's the text that's been assigned to me, but I think it is, is, is uh, in Genesis, uh, the passages uh, that Lynn uh, just read for us. And here we see uh, that Jesus has a cosmic, uh, universe-defining significance. So four very simple uh, points that help us increase our view of Jesus, and so increase our view of Christmas. And first of all, creation, creation, all of creation is created through Christ. All of creation is created through Christ. Uh, God created the world through his Son. God created the world through his Son. The very first verse of the Bible affirms that God created the world. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Well, he did it by speaking at uh, 10 times in the first uh, chapter. 10 times there is the repeated refrain, and God said. And that's the author kind of underlining God created by speaking. So verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God create, created by his word. And that's something that throughout the Bible, Bible writers reflect on. The psalmist says, by the word of the mouth, the heavens were made. Uh, even in our uh, continuous reading from Hebrews, uh, we read it. Hebrews 11, verse 3, the universe was created by the word of God. And yet we know that when we get to the New Testament, the word of God is identified with Jesus. The beginning of John's gospel, which has all these echoes with Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then John tells us later on, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word through whom God created the world. And in between those two statements, John tells us, all things were made through him. Without him, not anything made that was made. Everything, the whole universe was made through Jesus. And Paul says something very similar in Colossians 1. And uh, it's interesting, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, in, in many ways they're a, a meditation on Genesis through the lens of Jesus. 
And so you can see lots of uh, overlapping ideas in uh, both passages. But this is what Paul says in Colossians 1. By him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the wonderful truth of Christmas is the baby born in Bethlehem was the very one through whom God created the universe. But even more strikingly, uh, Paul continues in Colossians 1, says that all things were created through Christ and for him, and by him all things hold together. So in other words, Jesus, uh, God didn't just create the universe through Jesus. God sustains the universe through Christ. He is the means by which God sustains the universe. And that was true even when he was a baby in the manger. And that is the stunning truth of Christmas. This baby in a manger entirely dependent on his mother was at the same time sustaining the entire universe. I mean, that is the wonderful mystery of Christmas. Jesus, fully God and fully man. It's not that when he was born as a baby in a manger, entirely dependent and helpless, that he stopped being God. No, he was at one at the same time, fully man and fully God. That is the wonder of Christmas. Uh, The one who was born as a baby in the manger was the one through whom God created all things. And he was the one, even as a helpless, dependent baby in a manger, he was the one who was sustaining the entire universe. The implication of that is that as we look around our world, we should praise God, and not just in a sort of general sense, there's nothing wrong with that, but we we praise God specifically for Jesus because this is his world. It was created through him. It was created for him and he is the one who sustains it. Uh, I've been uh, challenged uh, as I've been thinking about this sermon to to think more Christianly about the creation around me. And actually, at a more fundamental level, I've been challenged to look around me more often. I, um, I've been convicted that I, I probably spend uh, too much time focusing on my phone, which just kind of narrows your horizons. And I've been challenged to, to look up and look around at creation and to thank God, particularly to thank God for Jesus, for the creation. Uh, that the one who came at Christmas is uh, the one through whom God created everything that we see around us. And he is the one who sustains it. Uh, I recently read, uh, and yeah, I read it on my phone, I have to admit, um, about how whales sleep. Uh, this, this is amazing. Um, whales sleep, maybe you don't know this, but, or maybe you do know this, but whales sleep vertically. You can see these amazing pictures uh, on, on the internet, on, on your phones, uh, of uh, whales sleeping in pods uh, vertically. It, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And someone made the comment, 
Uh, again, I read it on Twitter on my phone. Uh, someone made the comment that in, in previous, uh, sorry, in, in our generation, when we see a photo like, like that, we think, wow, that's, that's really cool. And it is, it's, it's, it's fascinating. But previous generations, particularly previous generations of Christians who would not have had access to that incredible knowledge, if they'd been exposed to that, what would they have done? They would have praised God for the wonder of his creation. So next time that you look up or look down or even look online, uh, praise God. Praise God for his wonderful creation. And remember that it's Jesus Jesus, the one through whom God made everything, the Son of God, born at Christmas as a baby, is the Son through whom God created the world and through whom God has always sustained the world, even when he was a baby in a manger. It is his world. Christmas is so significant because Jesus is so significant. He is the one that this creation testifies to. Well, secondly, creation is completed by Christ. Creation is completed by Christ. Uh, the reading that we uh, looked at in Genesis 1 towards the end of the chapter uh, talks about uh, 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 humanity being uh, the image of God. Verse 27, in the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. There's something unique about human beings in relation in our relationship to God. Uh, there's just uh, interesting details in the text. Uh, when God creates everything else, he says it was good. But then in verse 31, when he's reflecting on creating uh, human beings, uh, he says that it was very good. There is something unique about human beings, male and female, and it's that we are created in his image. But it's really interesting when you try and drill down, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be in the image of God? And uh, theologians have kind of speculated about it. And uh, some have said, well, maybe it's because we're relational. Human beings relate to one another. Or maybe it's because human beings are rational. And there's probably some truth in that. But at the same time, when you think about it, uh, it's not as if, uh, you know, animals are not relational in any sense, or it's not as if animals are not rational in any sense. So I think a, a, a sort of bigger answer is uh, here in the text of, of Genesis. And it is that we are God's image as we represent God in a way that is different to the animals. We uniquely embody God's rule in the world. Uh, that seems to be closer to what Genesis has in mind. And it fits the context where having stated that they're made in his image, uh, he then goes on to talk about their commission as rulers under him. It also fits the ancient context where uh, if you were a, 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 a ruler, an emperor, uh, you would put statues, images of yourself all around your empire to, uh, to kind of remind people uh, that you are in charge. I had a friend uh, who worked in a... Um, uh, financial, um, uh, 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 like a stockbrokers in, in London, and uh, he had a boss, and when the boss would go on holiday for a couple of weeks, uh, he would leave his, uh, his jacket on his desk just to remind everyone that even though he was on holiday, you know, he was the boss and they needed to remember him. Okay, now that's a slightly narcissistic uh, way, and this is not, uh, you know, God is not uh, uh, operating in the same way that we might do, but what 
what he's doing is, is giving human beings um, this role of embodying and I- imaging his rule. And the task that humans are given is to subdue creation. They're to bring creation to its completion. And that's uh, a little bit counterintuitive because uh, that implies that creation is not complete, but we've said that creation is good. Well, the command of 128 shows us uh, that creation was not complete because it needed to be subdued. It needed to be subdued, brought into subjection. How can creation be good but not complete? Well, I think there's a a parallel with Jesus when he's born. uh, Jesus, uh, from, from from his birth uh, throughout his whole life was sinless, uh, utterly good. And yet Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus actually grew and developed. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. Was Jesus good? Yes, absolutely. Was he sinless? Yes, absolutely. Was he in his humanity fully formed? No, he needed to grow. It's the same with creation. God created creation good, but uh, he gave uh, human beings, gave creation to human beings to bring it to its completion, to enable it to grow. And so the creation account has a dynamic aspect to it. Uh, God didn't create a fully formed static creation that Adam and Eve were simply to preserve and, and not to sort of allow to corrupt. No, they were to actively subdue creation, to bring it into line with God's intentions. And so we're expecting something to happen. Sadly, though, Adam and Eve fail. They do not bring creation into line with what God wanted. And so we're left wondering who is going to bring creation to completion. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, the answer is Jesus. And the New Testament, interestingly, when it speaks uh, in, in places, reflects on Jesus, it uses the language of Jesus being the second Adam. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul specifically uses that language in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the Gospels don't use that language, but they'll portray Jesus in ways that have echoes of Adam. So the, the temptation narrative, uh, that in many ways is an echo of, of, of Adam, uh, except Jesus is being tempted in a desert, not in, in a paradise. And of course, Jesus does not give in to temptation where Adam failed. Jesus is the one who will succeed and who does succeed in a way that Adam failed. Jesus is the one who will subdue creation, who will defeat the evil one, who will defeat uh, the evil one. Colossians 1, as I said, this reflection on uh, on Genesis 1, Colossians describes Jesus as the ultimate image of God. And he is the one who is the firstborn over all creation. Again, that's what Paul does. He connects that idea of image and rule. Jesus is the image of God. He rules over creation. He brings creation to completion. So Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Through whom God sustains the world. And Jesus is the one who brings creation to completion. 
But we just need to, to sort of pause for our, our third point to think a little bit more about Adam's failure. And so our third point is creation is cursed because of Adam. As we've said, Adam and Eve were given a task to subdue creation. They fail at that task rather than casting the serpent out of the garden, casting Satan out of the garden. They listen to him and they end up obeying his word rather than God's word. And that unleashes a chain of punishment uh, from God who pronounces a curse on the serpent, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, and even on creation itself. Just a little bit beyond uh, uh, our Bible reading, verse 17, God tells Adam that because he ate from the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And as you read on in the Bible, that that idea of curse is particularly connected to the idea of death. Uh, The the curse that lays over creation is the curse of death. And uh, you'll remember that God uh, said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's not as if Adam and Eve uh, immediately die physically but they die spiritually. They brought spiritual death into the world. And then spiritual death obviously leads to physical death in time. Because of Adam's sin, curse has come into the world. The world is cursed. Death hangs over the world. And yet, even following Adam's sin, there's a note of hope. Uh, There's kindness in God's response to their sin. Chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. But there's also the promise that the time will come when the serpent will be defeated. Chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The second Adam will come and will defeat Satan. But until that time, the curse hangs over creation. And so we need to think thirdly about how creation is redeemed through Christ. How creation is redeemed through Christ. Fourthly, actually, sorry, my maths. Um, Creation is redeemed through Christ. Uh, The word of God to Adam and Eve, as we said, was that if they disobeyed him. If they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. They don't die physically immediately, but they certainly die spiritually, and they bring death into the world. Uh, death and curse in the world because of Adam's failure. And yet, by the end of the Bible, Revelation 22 tells us that there will, in the new creation, be no more curse. And in in a nutshell, that's the story of the Bible, how we go from the curse of Genesis 3 to no curse in Revelation 22, and it is uh, because of Jesus. It is because of Jesus. But in the first instance, uh, there is something of a dilemma for God, because he's pronounced a curse over creation, and God can't... uh, just be like an indulgent parent who says, oh, I know I said that, but you know, I, I'll, 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 not, I'll not enact that punishment. No, God is true to his word. He said that death would come, curse would come, 
And yet, at the same time, uh, he wants the world to be redeemed. He wants the world to be redeemed. And this uh, kind of tension uh, is uh, captured by um, the fourth century uh, theologian Athanasius. Uh, And uh, he said, it would, of course, have been unthinkable that God should go back upon his word and that man, having sinned, should not die. God can't go back on his word. He cannot go back on his word. He said, man will die, man sinned, man has to die. But at the same time, Athanasius says, it would be equally monstrous that he would bring human beings who shared in the nature of the word of God, Jesus, that they would perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. What was God to do? In other words, how can God be true to his word, and yet how can he save uh, the world? He can't simply forgive in a way that the penalty is overlooked, because that would make him out to be a liar. But he can't just allow his creative purposes to fail. How can he restore creation without, at the same time, going against his word? Well, Athanasius understood that the only solution was for the Son of God, the Word, to take him upon himself a human body and allow God's penalty of death to be fulfilled in him as our substitute, while at the same time conquering the power of death through the resurrection. So the answer, you know, the, the answer to this kind of tension of God being true to his word and yet wanting to redeem the world, the answer is Christmas. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus born as the one who is both God and man, who takes the curse upon himself. Uh, This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That is the great news of Christmas. That is the great hope of the gospel that we don't need to bear the curse ourselves anymore because Christ has borne it for us. Uh, One of the uh, favorite hymns we sing at Christmas, I think we're going to sing it at the end, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, yep, Uh, uh, is is a a wonderful song about Jesus as God and man. But there's a, a, a verse that we uh, that we don't uh, sing. It's a sort of forgotten verse. And I'll, I'll read it, and you can, you can kind of understand why we don't sing it, because the, the, the language is quite, sort of, is quite tricky, but the theology it expresses is amazing. Uh, just listen uh, to this uh, kind of uh, lost verse, if you like. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, remove, uh, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Well, hopefully what we've seen this evening is that Christmas is not a surprise, but hopefully we've seen as well how great Christmas is. Uh, That Christmas is great because Christ is great. Uh, He is the one 
through whom God created the universe. He is the one through whom God sustains the universe. He is the one through whom God brings creation to completion. He fulfills the role that Adam failed to do, and he subdues creation by redeeming it. He is the God-man who takes the curse that Adam brought into creation. And so in response, uh, well, the response is really to be thankful, to keep trusting in Jesus, and to keep living our lives for him. Uh, Peter Jensen, if you were here last week, reflected on that verse in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. And that makes absolute sense when we understand who Christ is. Uh, and how significant his coming is. Uh, our world uh, marginalizes Jesus. I think we sort of, we, we feel that especially at Christmas as, as Christians, as the, as the focus is on uh, lots of other good things, of, of celebrating, of, of, of family, uh, and yet the world just seems to marginalize uh, Jesus. But I think even as Christians, uh, we can have a low view of Jesus. I was thinking about that uh, this uh, recently, when I saw a meme on Twitter, on my phone, and uh, it, was, uh, it was making an insightful joke uh, uh, about uh, Christians, and it, it, had, uh, it had Jesus saying this really wise, uh, uh, wise saying, and it wasn't blasphemous. Uh, it sort of made Jesus out to be kind of cruel and insightful. And yet it struck me that it was still sort of domesticating Jesus. It was turning Jesus into kind of a cool, wise hipster. And Jesus is a human being. Yes, that's absolutely true. But I think that kind of thinking uh, uh, short circuits uh, our view of the glory of Christ. And so my prayer for myself, a prayer for all of us, is that this Christmas we would recapture something of the glory of Christ. The significance of what he has done, not just for us as individuals, but for the entire universe. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We do thank you uh, that the one who was born uh, as a baby in Bethlehem was the one through whom you created the entire universe, was the one through whom you sustain the universe, and is the one through whom you brought and you will bring the universe to uh, completion by redeeming it from the curse of death. Uh, please, our Father, this Christmas, would you uh, increase our view of the significance of Christmas by increasing our view of the significance of Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name.